that. Obviously, diving in, staying in Job, and it's a walk through reality. I don't want us to lose sight of that. Uh, Job is a real look, real life. Uh, and so the emotions we're going to see from him are not fabricated. This is not pretense. He doesn't have a wall up, a uh, veneer up. He, we're, we're seeing what's happening in his life. And last week was a question of hope. And this week is a fixed hope because, and I'll say this multiple times, in, in these verses in chapter 19, you get one of the most powerful statements of faith in the Old Testament from Job's lips, but they are in the middle of heartache and agony. I don't know if you've ever watched people pile on someone. I see that happen with my kids. I have five kids, and so uh, when one gets in trouble, I don't know if you have this with siblings, they pile on a little bit. Uh, I, I chuckle every time I see Clayton watch one of his siblings get in trouble, and I know that he's been wandering out of the bounds of rules himself. Because when he sees someone getting in trouble, he brings all the incriminating evidence he can against them, and he just, just kind of dumps it out for us, all to make sure that the intention never shifts to himself or his behavior. He's one of the, uh, you know, you look at, all your kids are different, right? But he's the one that, that definitely understands not being seen in the sense of I'm doing something wrong, let's not draw attention to myself. Uh, but so he sees an opportunity. I, I put it as the get out of jail free card is how he views a sibling in trouble. Of course, the second he starts piling on evidence on someone else and knowing a little bit what's going on, we start asking him what he's been up to. And I love this part. The evidence dries up and he disappears. It's just gone. Um, but sometimes when the kids are piling on each other, I don't know if you've had this in your family, uh, you know the one that's in trouble is guilty and they deserve to get corrected. But everyone is piling on so much, you start feeling sympathetic for the one that's in trouble because everyone's just kind of dumping on. It's like, wow, this person has enough trouble. Quit adding to it. Now, the friends of Job never feel that way. And that's what I want you to understand, because how we would naturally say, man, he is getting burdened down. I mean, this is just too much. Even if we think he's guilty, this is just too much. The friends never have that feeling of sympathy for Job. They never consider the weight of all their accusations. Instead, as he is struggling under what they say, they just buckle down more on him. They intensify their accusations and they make sure now Job cannot see a glimmer of hope. That's their goal in round two. We don't want you to have any hope. Whereas before we were giving you a little hope if you would repent, now we just want to wipe it off the map. And so Eliphaz just preached his hopelessness message. Bildad steps up to the plate and follows with more no hope preaching, all of which we can see in what Bildad says. Now, Bildad's sermon here is a sermon of hell and punishment for the wicked, but it's a sermon that has no exhortation or option to escape it. Uh, as Hartley notes, it says, this speech lacks any praise to God and any exhortation to Job. It is a vindictive sermon that is completely misapplied and gives no hope. Now, his description of what happens to wicked people looks a lot like punishment in hell. He actually gets that part right but he so misapplies it that his sermon becomes false. We dive into chapter 18. 
It says here, then answered Bildad the Shuite and said, how long will it be ere you make an end of words? Mark and afterwards we will speak. Wherefore are we counted as beasts and reputed vile in your sight? He teareth himself in his anger. And what he's saying there is, you're creating your own agony, Job. Shall the earth be forsaken for thee and shall the rock be removed out of his place? Bildad, like Eliphaz, is wondering when Job will stop talking. When will you be quiet? And the implication in the Hebrew is this idea. Your constant talking makes you sound guilty. Again, I'm, I'm picking on Clay this morning. Boy, the number of words he uses to explain what he's doing. And I've said to him a couple of times, the more you talk, the more guilty you sound. And that's the truth, right? Sometimes we're like, well, you're talking too much. It must mean you're guilty. The friends are doing that to Job. You're talking so much, you're defending yourself so fiercely, it almost proves your guilt. He wants Job, and this is what he's pushing Job to, why don't you just be quiet and listen to us wise ones speak? Let us speak. When are you going to stop talking and, and just let us talk? He chafes under Job's accusation that they're not helpful. He then says that Job is ripping himself apart. In essence, your agony is coming because you, Job, resist and rebel against God's discipline. You're, you're causing your problem, which is ridiculous, right? Because that's nothing compared to all the agony he has faced. And I want you to remember this. Uh, and, and he kind of closed with this idea. He asked, do you really think that God would alter the whole universe to redeem one man? Would God move the rock? Would he change the order of the universe to redeem one man? And I want you to think about this because God had planned from the beginning to alter the universe to redeem humankind. And so what you see from Bildad, as he we, we goes against Job, he says, God's not going to change anything for you. God's not going to move anything for you. How arrogant are you? But in so doing, he is denying what God had planned before creation. Because he knew we'd be sinful and he knew he would need to redeem us. And so he does alter all of the universe, actually, to redeem sinful humanity. Bildad now turns to the fate of the wicked. And like Eliphaz, he makes it clear that he means Job. He does it in, in a kind of not horrible way because everything he does, and he's a gifted order. And so he grabs things that Job has said and he weaves it into how the wicked feel and he comes to his conclusion. If you are punished like the wicked and you feel like the wicked, you must be wicked. And so he starts off, Yea, the light of the wicked shall be put out and the spark of his fire shall not shine. The light shall be dark in his tabernacle and his candle shall be put out with him. And you're going to see this. He's going to repeat this phrase. He's, he's saying over and over again that the wicked will be in darkness. The repetitive reference to lost light speaks to the hopeless end of the wicked affecting every corner of his life. There's no light anywhere. It's all going to be extinguished. The light giving torch will not shine. The light in the tent, the main lamp in a, in a tent dwelling will go out. The candle near you will be snuffed out. There is no glimmer of light. As Job has said, death brings darkness and build that agrees. That is for the wicked. That's for you, Job, all headed to doom. Bildad starts off saying, the wicked go to darkness. Job, you feel like darkness is coming on you. You must be wicked. He agrees with Job in a creative way 
to prove that Job is wicked. He now moves on from darkness in store for the wicked to them being trapped. And then you're going to get six different traps here. The steps of his strength shall be straightened. In other words, you're, you're marching forward with boldness, but it's going to be shortened. Your stride is going to be shortened and his own counsel shall cast him down for he is cast into a net by his own feet and he walketh upon a snare. The gin shall take him by the heel and the robber shall prevail against him. The snare is laid for him in the ground and a trap for him in the way. And again, here is this idea that the strong are marching off. The wicked, I mean, are marching off in a strong stride. Their, their schemes are moving forward, but it's going to be all shortened or stopped. And then build that list, six different types of traps. And again, the repetitive nature, he's trying to make a very clear point. The wicked will fall into a trap. You might miss one, you might miss two, but you're not going to miss six different traps. What has Job complained about? I'm hedged in, I'm trapped. And again, build that agrees. The wicked are trapped, you feel trapped, you are wicked. So he moves now from no light to a for sure trap on the wicked and now moves on to now the idea of absolute terror that awaits this person. And I want you to see what Bildad is doing here. First, he tells Job, <coughs> stop talking. We don't want to hear you anymore. Just listen to us. Your own agony is caused by you talking against God. God's not going to move heaven and earth to redeem you. So he starts out with a no redemption, no hope scenario. Then he starts talking about the wicked. You're going to be in darkness. Every lamp you can think of is going to be snuffed out. Then you're going to get trapped. There's no way you can avoid six traps. No matter what you do, you're going to be trapped. Now he, he's building, right, from darkness to being trapped. And now we're going to this idea of utter absolute terror. And that's 11 through 14. It says, terror shall make him afraid on every side and shall drive him to his feet. His strength shall be hunger bitten and destruction shall be ready at his side. <laughs> it shall devour the strength of his skin. Even the firstborn of death shall devour his strength. His confidence shall be rooted out of his tabernacle and it shall bring him to the king of tares. And what he's saying is the wicked are filled with anxiety about horrific loss. If you go back to chapter three, verse 25, you're going to encounter Job talking about being worried about something bad happened. That causes the wicked to lose strength. The wicked are going to be eaten up by crippling diseases. Job has that problem. Pulled out of the security of their home and brought to the grim reaper, death himself. And so this opens the door to Bildad's conversation about utter desolation and destruction. He goes on in 15 and 16. It shall dwell in his tabernacle. And the it is referring to fire, a burning, judging fire, because it is none of his. Brimstone shall be scattered upon his habitation. His roots shall be dried up beneath and above shall his branches be cut off. With the wicked, uh, the man will be torn from his home. The forces of destruction, once he's out of his home, will have free reign over all that he has. His tent, his house is completely destroyed. The thing unknown in his tent is fire and you see brimstone and sulfur raining down on him. The attack will strike at the roots of the tree, leaving no hope for the branches or regrowth. And again, don't miss this in Bildad's speech. There is no hope. 
So this idea of utter destruction is reigning supreme. The roots of the tree are ripped out. There is no hope, Job. There is no solution. No one's coming to save you. God is not listening to you. That is what he's trying to beat into his head. He now moves to this feeling of isolation that the wicked will experience. His remembrance shall perish from the earth and he shall have no name in the street. He shall be driven from light into darkness and chased out of the world. He shall neither have son nor nephew among his people, nor any remaining in his dwellings. No one will remember the wicked. No one will care about them after they're gone. By the way, that's a principle given in Proverbs 10, 7. It says the righteous are remembered and the wicked are forgotten. And with that, Bildad moves to his closing summary argument. They that come after him shall be astonished at his day as they that went before were frightened. Your life is going to be the example of what not to do. This is what we're going to use to scare our kids into not doing what you did. And he goes on, Surely such as are the dwelling of the wicked, and this is the place of him that knoweth not God. Here is a summary of the wicked man's existence, a reference point of what not to do, and beyond that, a mist that is forgotten. That is your outcome, Job. That's what Bildad says. And he ends with no hope and no escape. Just Job's inevitable ending. Now, I think as we walk through that chapter, and I know I'm moving through it quickly, Bildad is not talking in overly confusing language. He's making his point very clear. It's it's hard to miss the implications. But we're going to take a little closer look at the overall uh, meaning. What does Bildad mean? See, Bildad makes it abundantly clear what is in store for the wicked. And by the way, much of the outcome he predicts is the outcome for the wicked. He, he, he shares truth here that the wicked are forgotten and the righteous are remembered, that they face this loneliness, they face utter terror, that they face this anxiety. He describes hell very well, but he neglects to connect those truths to God's reality and theology His application is only linked to his own system of thinking, and that is why he's terribly wrong. He also cannot see the fact of undeserved suffering, and so he comes to faulty conclusions about Job. But Bildad wants to make a few things clear. One is this, the wicked are punished. He goes to great lengths to make that clear, and in what way? He not only says the wicked are punished, he describes in gory detail how they will be punished. And what he depicts of the pain and torture are found in hell. He's not wrong about it. He shows that they will be in darkness, trapped, consumed in terror, and ultimately forgotten for all eternity, separated from God. He is describing, you can tie directly to his his poetic language, and you can see the the groundwork of what hell really is. The problem, though, is, is Bildad shares all of this without attempting to glorify God, And instead, just making sure Job connects it to himself. He shares what's going to happen to the wicked, and he makes it abundantly clear that Job should realize something. He wants to make this clear. Job is wicked. The wicked are punished, and Job is wicked. He links back to the things Job faced and expressed. He points to Job's own omissions and draws unarguable conclusions. We talked about this last week. As a side note, if you're dealing with someone in suffering... Shame on you if you manipulate what they say to beat them up again. And that's exactly what these friends are doing. Job, he says, has experienced what wicked people experience. So that must equal Job 
being wicked. His conclusion is, you have the problems of the wicked, the punishment of the wicked, the suffering of the wicked. That means you are wicked because there is no undeserved suffering. So this has to be the, the case. He even started saying Job was tearing himself. Can you imagine being in suffering and someone saying to you, who's supposed to be a friend, by the way, you're feeling this miserable and it's all your own fault. Just so you know, that doesn't help anybody. And it didn't help Job either. He goes so far as to imply that Job's arguing his case only proves him guilty. See, Bildad, like Eliphaz, has no room in his theology for undeserved suffering. He looks at Job's suffering and he says, only the wicked can suffer like that. And so he comes to his big conclusion, Job is wicked. On top of that, Bildad now assumes that it is too late for Job. Notice there was no hope in that passage. There's no option for Job. There's not even a, a call to repent. All he's telling Job is it's going to get worse for you. It's going to be even harder as we move forward. He has no escape, no hope. He is just doomed. Yet Bildad has forgotten about the reality of God and his plan. He sees only his small world and perspective and has neglected the big picture that God has painted. God has a redemptive plan for us and Bildad seeks to ignore it. God does move heaven and earth to redeem us. He does come down and become perfect man to die on the cross for our sins. But Bildad doesn't want to look at that. He wants to ignore it. He wants to live in his tidy world where nothing bad will happen to him. And to do that, he feels the need to ignore the reality of a true believer walking through a horrific ordeal. For you to not experience pain and then to watch someone who you think is like you experiencing pain, a believer, then you have to assume something. You either have to assume that you can experience pain or you have to make that person a non-believer. And that's what the friends have chosen to do. They are doing everything to protect their bubble. We will give you, Job, no hope in hopes of maintaining my bubble existence, but he can never maintain his bubble. That's not possible. So yes, as we look at Bildad's speech, let's understand the ultimate end of the wicked. Let's not miss what he says that is true. The horror that is described is the horror faced by an unbeliever. But let that be a prompt to preach the hope and redemption found in Jesus Christ. Let's make his message of truth and reality the priority and not make the priority the protection of the image we have of life on earth. Sometimes we don't engage with people in the world because it's messy, because it doesn't fit our little picture that we've painted. And so we... we move in a direction like the friends because we want to protect the bubble that we have created. When God has called us to get in to the mess and preach his hope and his redemption, in this life we face suffering and loss. That is a reality of scripture. But we look forward to the life to come where we have a better possession and an abiding one. That's Hebrews 10, 32 through 34. Now, as we've consistently seen no matter how vicious the attack is, Job has the fortitude to give a response to his friends. We can never accuse Job of being quiet. He is a guy that speaks. And so after hearing a message of ultimate punishment ringing in his ears, we now look at what Job has to say. 
And I want you to realize that Job cries out here, and this is because we're going to deal with that, that massively important statement towards the end of 19. But Job's, the majority of what Job has to say is wondering if God is truly against him. It is a question that has plagued Job throughout the book, and it will lead, that will lead him to what Ash says is the heart of the book. Job turns on my Redeemer liveth. But as we lead up to it, Job expresses this idea that God is against him. Remember last week, he said that God is my Satam, which is the one who hates me. And that's linked very closely to the word Satan, Satan, which means my adversary or my enemy. And so Job has seen God as the adversary or as Satan. And so here he is dealing with this idea of God being against him, but he makes a statement of complete trust and firmly grounded faith in the midst of going to God and saying, are you literally against me? Am I now your enemy? And it says 19, then Job answered and said, how long will you vex my soul? I love the fact that they always share insults ahead of time. So you know, just insult your friends and then say your point is basically what it seems like. And break me in pieces with words. These 10 times have you reproached me. You're not ashamed that you make yourself strange to me. And be it indeed that I have erred, my error remaineth with myself. In other words, even if I've sinned, I've dealt with the sin. It's not an unforgiven sin or an unsacrificed sin that we'll be talking about. I haven't perpetuated violence on other people. <laughs> if indeed you will magnify yourselves against me, and plead against me my reproach. In other words, are you going to keep lifting yourself up and making yourself better than me, using my suffering as the foundation for that? Know that God hath overthrown me and hath compassed me with this net. And here he's dealing with this idea. God has come after me. God is against me. That's what he's weighing. Job asked the friends, how long will you afflict me and tear me apart with your words? He's affected by his friend's tone. He's affected by them saying, you're a wicked person. He's affected by them mocking his cry to God. Ten times is a way of highlighting how often they attack him. And he wonders, are you going to be ashamed because you've distanced yourself from me? Are you going to feel any shame because you've not been a friend, that you've become like a stranger? Verse 4, Job is accepting the reality of sin. He's not saying he's sinless. He's saying that the sin was not left unforgiven or unsacrificed for. It is not the cause for his suffering. He sacrificed for his sins. That's why he made all those sacrifices. Don't forget Job 1. Don't forget what he's done. His, his kids would have a, a gathering and he would gather his kids and then he would offer sacrifices in case they would have done something wrong. So you know he's covered sacrificing for his sins. He's not negating that. He calls them out for thinking themselves better than him and using his suffering as their proof of that. Are we not guilty of the same? We look at somebody out there, we look at a believer and say, well, they're struggling. They must, they must not be living the Christian life. They must not be doing things right like God wants. And we're wickedly being just like the friends who are looking at life and saying, well, that means you're not a good Christian. It means nothing of the kind. That's what Job tells us. But he's saying, how dare you use my suffering as your proof? And he affirms again to them that God has done this without just cause. God has no right. It's unjust what's taking place to me. He continues, behold, I cry out of wrong, but I'm not heard. In other words, I scream out violence, wrong, and no one listens. I cry aloud, but there is no judgment. 
He hath fenced up my way that I cannot pass, and he hath set darkness in my pass. He hath stripped me of my glory and taken the crown from my head. He hath destroyed me on every side, and I am gone, and mine hope hath he removed like a tree. And he says here, he uses an analogy that Bildad said about being uprooted. He says, God has ripped my hope up by its roots. There is no hope. God's taken it away from me. He hath also kindled his wrath against me, and he counteth me unto him as one of his enemies. I'm his main target, as he's saying. His troops come together and raise up their way against me and encamp round about my tabernacle. Job is saying this, I cry out that I've been wrong, but no one comes to help. He then paints an interesting picture. He says, God has hemmed me in. God has fenced me in. And if you remember what Satan said to God, when God said, have you seen Job and how righteous he is? And Satan says to God, well, that's because you put a fence around him and you've protected him. And Job says, no, the fence around me is not protective at all. It keeps me in the arena where I'm just being pummeled. He goes on, all my dignity and rule has been taken away, which it has. He's on an ash heap outside of the city where people come smack and spit him in the face. So he's lost all that's there. He says, God has ignited his wrath, Job says, against me. It's blazing hot and it's personal. God is not just angry at me in general. God is angry at me very specifically. He's fired up his anger and he's centered in on me. And he goes on to say this, I'm his enemy. So while I sit in my tent and think of what a tent embodies, just one tent, one dwelling, God has a massive army to come destroy that. He now moves on. He says, because of this, these circumstances and suffering, I've been isolated completely. He hath put my brethren far from me, and mine acquaintances are verily estranged from me. My kinfolk have failed, and my familiar friends have forgotten me. In other words, I've lost every relationship on earth that can be imagined. They that dwell in my house and my maids count me for a stranger. I'm an alien in their sight. My employees view me as a stranger. I called my servant, and he gave no answer. I entreated him with my mouth. My breath is strange to my wife, though I entreated for the children's sake of mine own body. And actually, in Hebrew, that word there is more pointing to his siblings. I entreated my direct siblings, uh, and, and not speaking of children. His children are obviously dead. Yea, young children despise me. I arose, and they spake against me. All my inward friends abhorred me, and they whom I loved are turned against me. My bone cleaveth to my skin and to my flesh, and I am escaped with the skin of my teeth. Everyone, Job says, has walked away from me. People that used to delight in working for me view me as an intruder and ignore me. His wife finds his breath repulsive and his own siblings ignore him. Little children who in that culture were typically respectful of their elders. Uh, that's not necessarily the case today, but that was the case back then. He says, they despise me, which was the unusual. His closest friends, the ones talking with him, have turned against him. His rejection is complete, and physically he is barely alive. That's where he's at. He then cries to his friends. This is a plea to them. He says, have pity upon me. Have pity upon me, O ye my friends. For, and this is an important phrase, the hand of God hath touched me. Why do you persecute me as God and are not satisfied with my flesh? He cries to his friends to have pity because he sees God's direct hand against him. Now, he begs them for compassion because God has shown none. And I'm going to come back in a minute to that word hand 
because it's actually pretty important what he's saying. He asked them why they attack like God and are not satisfied that he's dying. Why do you have to heap on more to me? Why do you have to, why do you have to pile on? I'm dying. Are you not happy that I'm dying? Is, is my death not enough? But back to the hand of God touching him, Christopher Ashe, as one of the commentators I'm reading, he asked this question, was it God's direct hand that afflicted Job? And the answer is no. If you look at chapter 1, 11 and 12, Satan calls on God to put forth his hand. Satan says to God, you do this. He says, but put forth thine hand now and touch all that he hath and he will curse thee to thy face. Yet God's permission is for Satan to use his hand. He says to him, and the Lord said unto Satan, behold, all that he hath is in thy power only upon himself. Put not forth thine hand. So Satan went forth from the presence of the Lord. <clears throat> if you look in chapter two, verses five and six, you see the same outline. Satan says, you touch him. And, and God says to Satan, you're allowed to touch him with your hand. You see, God permitted the suffering. We're not negating that. Satan sought God's permission, but Job is seeing something inaccurate here. He sees God's direct hand causing this, when in actuality, it was Satan's hands. Satan, disguised as God, which he loves to do, by the way, disguised as an angel of light, 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen, And Job has Job seeing the attack as from God's hand. You see, their theology, that was the friends and likely Job's before this, does not have room for Satan, or at least not a Satan that acts and brings a real force of evil into this world. Their theology was this. It was a slot machine. Life is a slot machine created by the slot machine maker. If you put good coins in, you get a can of blessing. If you put bad coins in, you get a can of poison. They had no room in their theology for this idea of a real force of evil in the world a force that was personal and influential, they couldn't process that. And so they're missing the point about Satan and Job is missing it. See, he's seeing God as a monster. He sees God as this, this horrible being. He knows he loves him and worships him and he created the world, but he's wrestling with this idea that how could this God directly do this to me and then also be God. And so Job is, is learning here and growing and understanding what's taking place. And the friends can't even process it because Satan is a distant force. Everything that's taking place has to be because he's wicked. And Job is, is constantly wrestling back with God. I want a vindicator. I want a redemption. I need someone to talk for me because he sees God as a monster. But What's fascinating is in the middle of that question, just like last week, when he says to God, you're my Satan, you're my adversary, Satan, linking as close as he can to calling God the adversary. And here in the midst of saying God's own hand has done this to me, which he's wrong about, it's always good to see where Job is wrong. But in the middle of that, you're going to see him overcome the feeling that God is against him personally and say something completely different. Now he leads into that. So the next verse is 23 through 24. Oh, that my words were now written. Oh, that they were printed in a book, that they were graven with an iron pen and lead in the rock forever. In other words, 
He's responding to Bildad who says, you're going to be the best bad example we can give our kids and grandkids and great-grandkids. Nothing is going to be better than saying, see Job, don't be a Job. And so Job says, I want the truth carved into rock. And, and it's funny, the high idea of iron pen, the idea of putting metal in the carving allows it to glisten. In other words, I want to make sure people read this. And the idea of carving into rock sets a sense of permanency. He wants truth recorded in a way that it cannot be erased. He does not want his friends to manipulate his situation to promote their bad theology. One writer notes this, isn't it ironic that we're still reading his words today? He says, I want it carved in stone and and generations of people read Job, know the story of Job. It's better than carved into stone. It's tucked into God's word. Job then states confidently where he knows his hope rests. And this is really important. Job is wondering and feeling and trying to understand and crying out to God and accusing God of directly afflicting him. And then he shifts after the statement of record and he goes away from feeling and he moves to what he he knows with utmost confidence. So when he says, for I know, that's not a casual, I know, this is not a fake confidence, I know, And to stick with my theme of picking on Clayton, it's not Clayton's I know. Recently, I was talking about putting a fence in, and he started telling me how to build a fence. And I said, you know nothing about building a fence. He responded that he saw his Opa putting trees in, and he could figure out how to put a fence in. That's his logic that comes out. It's not that kind of knowledge. He's not even looking up. See what I tell you? He knows how to get out of trouble. Um, That's not that kind of knowledge. That's not the I know, but you don't really know. This is the I know with utmost certainty. And he says, for I know that my Redeemer liveth and that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. And though after my skin destroy this body, because the word worms is added to kind of make us understand worms destroy this body. Yet in my flesh shall I see God, whom I shall see for myself and mine eyes shall behold and not another, though my reins be consumed within me. Job states confidently now, my redeemer, my goel, my kinsman redeemer, the whole story of Ruth and Boaz and what he accomplishes. That's the same context. The one connected to me by covenant. Understand this. When he says my redeemer liveth, it's not a distant redeemer. It is a personal redeemer. Because this redeemer, when it says kinsman redeemer, you think, wow, they're just making this confusing and make it sound more Old Testament. No, the idea is this person is connected to you. This is a family bond. My kinsman redeemer, if I was murdered, would avenge my death, would care for my family. This, is, this idea is, is this is a covenant between them. It is a family relationship And what Job says is, my Goel lives. He's alive. He's affirming that his Redeemer is not gone. And in all reality, he's saying, my Redeemer lives forever. He cannot die and will act on my behalf. And he makes clear to us that his Redeemer is none other than God himself, because no one else can live forever except God himself. He will stand upon the earth. And and, and, uh, in all honesty, you could look at that word earth and it could be dust, which signifies Job's grave. He's saying this. He may be, he'll, he'll be, after I am gone, he will be there and he will vouch for me. 
And though Job knows that his skin will be destroyed, and that's the adding of the word worms, they're going to eat up the dead body, yet without a shred of doubt, he knows that he will see God himself. And I want you to see the hint of resurrection that's woven in there. <coughs> he will see him for himself in eternity, even though he has died. Job is saying again, and in stronger language, God will stand for me before himself. He will vouch for me before himself because in all reality, only God could stand before God. And that's the truth, right? This world without Christ stands before God in judgment and they won't be mouthing off some sarcastic remark. You will not tell God, well, whatever I did is good enough and you just have to deal with it. You'll say absolutely nothing when you stand before God because you won't be able to stand before God at all. You won't argue back your case. And so Job knows that. And so he says the only person that can stand before God is God himself. Jesus Christ stands in our stead. You see, the world looks at this and many people say it doesn't make any sense. Yet we know Jesus Christ, fully God and fully man, standing in our place. So when Christ looks in judgment upon us, he sees Jesus. When Job looks at his crushing suffering, when Job feels like God is pressing down, though it's really the enemy, Satan, whose actual hand is involved, Job still sees his Redeemer. And what we're seeing and what is being depicted is Job's deepest longing was to stand before his God, whom he loves and worships. And when he says to stand, it means you're in a right relationship to him. And that's what he's depicting here and really almost what he's seeing here. Standing before God in a right relationship, the deepest longing of his heart and soul. And I put here as a brief question, I wonder though, is God in a right relationship with him the deepest longing of your soul? Because we can wander all over this suffering thing and try to pluck things out of Job to try to make ourselves feel better in our life. But the ultimate thing is Job's deepest longing was for God. It was a right relationship with God. And that's what he's crying out for. In this moment, he's saying, even if I die, even if this horrible suffering goes to the end temporally, I know my Redeemer liveth. I know I will be vindicated. I know I'll be proven to be a believer. He ends his speech with a warning to his friends. But you should say, why persecute we him, seeing the root of the matter is found in me? Be ye afraid of the sword, for wrath bringeth the punishment of the sword, that ye may know there is a judgment." Job says, you're coming after me, unwilling to believe that I could be facing undeserved suffering and then unwilling to see the redemptive side of that coin. Who doesn't need a mediator? Someone who doesn't think they're wicked. Who doesn't need God to stand for them? Somebody who thinks they can stand in front of God themselves. And Job says, you better watch out. You're denying undeserved suffering and it means you're denying undeserved grace. So he says, beware, because your system ends in God's divine punishment. You all are the ones in need of repentance, <laughs> which by the way, is clearly seen at the end of Job, that they need to repent of what they've said. Job closes his speech by reaching out to his friends, pleading with them to see their redemptive need to acknowledge the crack in their system. And Job, like Bildad, has been very clear about what he's trying to say. But I think again, it's helpful to get the big picture of what Job means. This passage contains one of the most powerful statements of assurance and faith seen in the Old Testament, but it is surrounded by deep questions about God, with Job seeing God as the monster attacking him 
and thinking it is God's actual hand executing the unjustified pain and suffering. So the powerful statement of faith is cloaked in a question about whether God is for him or against him. Because look, I want you to realize this. Job feels punished like the wicked. The friends keep saying, wicked people get punished this way, so you must be wicked. And Job is not 100% arguing with his friends because his I feel punished like a wicked person. He feels abandoned. He feels like God is against him. He's gone on to say that God is my Satan, my, almost my Satan, my adversary. He's gone on to say that God's own hand is reaching down and ripping me apart. Yet, and this is the big yet, all of his angst and agony and unsurety is cloaked in the next thing that he knows. Job feels punished like the wicked, but Job knows the Redeemer like a true believer. He feels something on this end, but he follows it up with an affirmation of faith because he knows his Redeemer like only a true believer can. His statement, as one writer notes, is a magnificent burst of faith. He knows that no matter how long his trial lasts, and even if this trial extends to a death, he has utmost confidence that God will come forward to vindicate him. Job is still longing for the renewed intimate relationship with his God, whom he's worshipped and adored. He longs for something that he is assured will take place. <laughs> Thus the, yet in my flesh shall I see God, and whom I shall see for myself. Job knows this, <laughs> that he will stand in a right relationship before God. He knows that with utmost surety. And that longing and knowledge changes how he sees his circumstance. And it uniquely does that. One writer notes this, if he, speaking of Job, can look up to heaven and say, I know that my Redeemer lives, he will have peace. Job was able to look beyond death to his being acquitted by God and fellowshipping with him, and that gave him real hope, the hope only a believer can truly have. So again, from last week to this week, we're driven to look at the source of hope and see that it is in him alone. Job realizes in this moment of spiritual clarity that the important thing is not when and where he sees God, but that he will see God. Christopher Ash notes this, Job says in effect, I will not finally believe that the monster God is the God who made this world. In other words, ultimately Job, even though he says God's hand is against me, he's saying in the end, I know it's not God's hand directly against me. I know that the God I've always feared and loved is related to me by covenant. I belong to him and his family and his people. And in the end, even if it is after my death, I will see him and he will vindicate me so that it will be publicly seen that I have been a real believer with a clear conscience. The record of eternity, Job realized, will show him as being redeemed. He longs for his redeemer. He longs to be near him, to have a right and close relationship with him. And he knows with certainty that he will. But I kind of close with a question I asked earlier. Do we long for our Savior? Is that the deepest desire of our heart and our soul? To have a right relationship with our creator God? With our Savior? 
Do we know in spite of circumstances in life that he will redeem us and we will see him and know him and be with him for eternity? You see, that is the real and only hope of the believer. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this opportunity we have to gather together, to study your word, to walk through uh, Job's life and discourse. We know that you've given us this scripture for a reason. Uh, We've walked through these speeches of the friends and we see their lie, but we also see some of the truth that's woven in. And oftentimes when things are closer to the truth, it's harder to discern where they go wrong. Bildad tells us about hell, but he forgets to tell us about salvation. Job cries out, duped by Satan to some extent, seeing what he's done and blaming God directly for it. But in the end, he sees his redeemer. He looks for the salvation and recognizes that God is not the monster that he thought he was. That though he, he struggles to get over his feelings and he's going to wrestle with it for chapters to come, In this moment, he recognizes that his Redeemer liveth and his Redeemer is going to act for him and that he will be in right relationship with his God. He longs for that. And I hope as his church here on earth in this time that we will also long for a right relationship with God. That we won't brush it aside, that we won't cling to our system like the friends are doing, but instead we'll run to God. Let it confront the cracks in our thinking and our theology and allow us to come to the one and only hope for all humanity. In your precious and holy name, amen.